Welcome everyone to The Scale Lab, brought to you by TechLeap. My name is Joe Wilson, I am your co-host, and I'm here with, once again, my partner in podcast, Constantine. And Constantine, we have returned again with probably a guest for inspiration here. He is an amazing guest, um, Mette Lucke from uh, Too Good To Go. And um, really exciting about uh, about this company that has such an incredible purpose, uh, but it's also uh, scaling like mad. So that's what we like. We like uh, successful companies and learn from them. So I think there will be a ton of lessons here. And uh, so I'd like to turn it over uh, to Mette. Um, you know, what motivated you to join To Good To Go? Because you, you already scaled a company uh, at Mondo before. Thanks for inviting me and, uh, and giving me the opportunity to talk about Too Good To Go. Too Good To Go is a social impact company. So we help stores, uh, supermarkets, bakeries sell the food that they would otherwise throw away by the end of business. And consumers basically go to these stores and, and pick up the food and they buy it at a discount. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, yeah, maybe we can dive into um, your, um, your scaling story at, at Mondo before. Um, because you, uh, you you ran a company before before you joined uh, to good to go and um, and um, the and we would particularly be interested in, in like when you knew you had product market fit and maybe compare that as well to uh, to good to go those two experiences were very different I would say so um, so when we first started in the Mondo, this was back in uh, 2007 and we had this vision that we wanted to make fitness fun. We wanted to bring technology and the social dimension into individual sports. So it was one of the first social fitness apps, running apps out there. And uh, and the requirement for using it was that you had GPS on your phone. So I don't know if you recall by now, but back yeah, in 2007. Early, early, early Endomondo user right here, I'll tell you. Yeah, great. And that's good to hear. But in 2007, very, very few users had GPS. So only Nokia phones initially supported GPS and only a few models. And and to make to make matters even worse, the app store hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. So when you when you build an app and you ask people to download it, the concept of an app just wasn't really known yet. It was a program on your phone and it was quite cumbersome to download it. You had to put in user phone number, then you got a text message, then you had to download it. So uh, the product market fit there was uh, an issue because the technology just wasn't ready. Both the GPS and the distribution in terms of app stores were, were missing. Um, so it took us three years to get to the first million users. And those were, there were some tough days, I would say, <laughs> within those first uh, three years. Can you go through yeah. the tactics of that? I mean, because we also touched on that with uh, Too Good To Go, right? But you're creating a new market category, basically, or a new kind of service. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you do that? How would you advise um, a, a founder who is creating, has a brilliant new idea, but has to create a new category? And how do you then uh, educate your uh, your customers? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's it's interesting when you when you study some of the biggest marketplaces, you find that they almost all start out very um, not unscalable. Uh, they they start out with things that. You 100% cannot keep doing, but it is how you get it all going in the beginning. Uh, at Endomondo, that meant uh, every weekend we would go out to whatever running race we could find in the country. We would set up shop, or we would borrow my 
my husband and boyfriend's car and then we would set up shop with a little uh, table and a computer and have someone carrying the phone or the, the app around and and just show it live on a screen uh it wasn't it wasn't that much fun <laughs> to do i would say over many weekends but we <laughs> kind of had to get users in one by one yeah. uh, in the beginning uh, we too good to go it was a different experience because at at that time you know, apps were uh, just a big part of our life. Now the distribution was easy. It only took a year to get to the first million users. Um, and on the, you know, because that's a marketplace, we also have a supply site we need to build up. But the stores actually really liked the value proposition from from day one. So so that that was relatively smooth, I would say, uh, compared to Endomondo. Yeah, I mean, basically, you guys have a, a classic two-sided marketplace. And yeah. you, we found like over the course of uh, maybe a decade overall from investments, like we had a bunch of venture that loved two-sided marketplaces. Then it fell out of favor, but now it seems to be like reasonably warm again. I'm curious on the supply side. You said you don't; they seem to like it. Is that harder than the consumer side? Because again, you guys are purpose and profit. So yeah. is is everybody like aligned on that, or does, is is it the stores? The supply side's like, yeah, well, if we can make extra money off the food we already have. That's fine. That's all they see it for. I, I definitely think the supply side is the hardest side uh, for our marketplace. And it is also the constraint uh, and has been almost since day one with a few exceptions. Um, but yeah, I think in general, the stores understand that there's, there's the, a strong mission. This is, you know, for a lot of them, this also becomes part of their CSR. Uh, then there's a marketing aspect. We actually also send new users to their stores. And we have research showing that a you know significant portion of them will become a recurring users paying full price later on. Uh, so it is a marketing channel in that sense. And then we have the then that's the money aspect. You have you you suddenly have some revenue off of the food you would otherwise throw away, and that revenue throws uh, through to your bottom line a hundred percent. But it it so so it's like a, a cocktail with three ingredients that most people like. And for some stores, it's really all about the mission, and they care less about uh the the financial aspect and for others it's a little bit more about the finance we we don't judge uh but uh, it, it varies a little bit one more product mm -hmm. question the yeah, you have a lot of a lot of themes and stuff today joe's a product guy i love products yeah, so be, they're yeah. being product led and in a sense i think of you guys as very product led i mean the idea of a product led company is to make the product do the work of marketing and in a sense yours i mean those supply side companies I mean, you're bringing them physical human beings at their store, where very few apps ever do that. In fact, most apps are doing the opposite. So you're in quite the space there. Do you think of yourselves that way as product-led? Um, you know, I, I don't actually find it super helpful to uh, to say we're product-driven or we're sales-driven. or so, so because <laughs> it quickly becomes this thing where collaboration gets harder. Mm -hmm. So uh, the way I think about our company is we're mission-driven. And then for us to succeed, we need to have strong collaboration between sales and marketing and product. Uh, I think I, I will say we have um, recently started investing a lot more in product uh, than we did in the past, which is absolutely the right thing to do. And I think also in the context of the markets uh, last year, uh, very happy that that has also meant we can reduce our marketing significantly. Yeah. Can you um, just on the product market fit? Um who was your your first and maybe who's now your 
uh, your your ideal customer in uh, or key persona is that is that someone with um, you know, low budget or is it someone who is ecologically concerned or can you describe your customer? Yeah, I mean the the way we've thought about it initially is that we had three main personas. So first one is. Um, is the the one everyone expects <laughs> so that's that's the student or the young career person who is quite flexible but on a budget um and who wants a smart solution um, and then we have the young families where uh, people recently got new responsibility new dimensions in life and really want to take responsibility um, and then we have slightly young uh, older people mostly women who uh, have a lot of passion for food okay so there's a clarity in sort of who, who's who's connected there. Let, let's continue with people, but I'll flip it over into the talent conversation. I think yeah. we talked about purpose and profit being together, and I think a lot of great companies are trying to combine those. How do you choose the right people, you know, for an organization like Too Good to Go? I think it's an easy answer to say, oh, we everybody's on the same mission, but you've got to run a company as well, not just not just drive purpose. So how do you make your people choices and maybe what roles have been most important recently to, to bring on? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's really key for us that we figure out how to combine the, the passion for the course with the right competencies. Uh, and, and there's, of course, as you grow the company, those competencies and requirements change quite a bit. Uh, I think the more the more recent big roles we filled were, were chief product officer and a COO uh, as well um, to to handle all our countries. Uh, and and here I've I've really looked for someone who came from uh, marketplaces for the CPO, someone who'd seen world class product for the COO, someone who really understands marketplaces and the two sides and and how to scale. Yeah, because when people come in to your office, I mean, are they? Uh, there must be some idealism in there. Right, and so how, and 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 it sometimes takes over. Um, we hear about impact uh, ventures, and yeah. uh, and impact yeah. becomes an excuse not to run a really really tight business. Um, yeah. Do you feel that too? Um, and do you feel that yeah. there is a tension? So, so I think when it comes to the senior level, I, I I don't think that it's an issue that the impact takes over. I think what 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 makes us able to attract great people on, at the senior level is that a lot of them have have long and 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 great careers. But in areas where they lack, they miss the purpose, uh, and and so that's what they find here. I think it's a little bit more risk at the more um, entry level jobs that, you know, there's a risk you get uh, salespeople in, for example, who love the mission, love the company, but they don't necessarily want to do sales, uh, uh, yeah. which is an issue when you, <laughs> when you take on a sales job, and 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 sales is people who just go out there in our case you're out in the field in many of our countries and you knock on doors uh, and you do it many times a day and you get mostly no's uh, so it it takes a lot of grit uh, to do that day in day out come uh, come rain and come snow um, and and then it helps to have the purpose and the mission but you also gotta actually enjoy sales right to to wanting to want to do that for for a long time maybe just I'm gonna click on a couple of operational details I think it's fascinating do they go out in person? Because I could actually imagine visiting the local establishments in person, in your case, might actually make a bigger difference than just trying to call in. So I'm curious how much of this is done in person versus done online for sales. Yeah, it, it varies a little bit by country. Uh, and also it, it it varies based on maturity of the market. But 
when we launch a new market, we are out there in the field, uh, literally knocking doors. And then one sort of kind of geeky question on the COO role. How are you using the scope of the COO role? We have this conversation come up all the time with companies that are just hitting scale and they're not quite sure how to use a COO role. So what scope are you giving your COO? So our COO is responsible uh, for basically the PNL and for all revenue. Um, so, uh, so all the markets uh, report into him. We have a we have a cluster level in between. So we have in Europe we have three different clusters, uh, covering our fifteen countries in Europe. Um, and so those three cluster VPs will uh, will report into the COO. And then we have uh, US and Canada. There we have country directors that report in directly. These these two hires, and then we'll move on to another topic. But uh, these two late hires are they? Uh, is that a function of you also evolving as a leader and going into a next role that you're bringing more, you're trying to kind of offload some of the operational responsibilities to to another professional? And so how, how is your leadership evolving and how does this, these hires fit into that? Yeah, I, so I, I think one of the things that I enjoy about a scale-up is that you your role as a CEO is constantly changing. Uh, so every six months or so, I kind of revisit a little bit, you know, how, what do I need to do now to be the right and the best CEO for this company? And, you know, almost always the answer is uh, some variation of delegate more <laughs> to more <laughs> to, to people. And, and of course, uh, you know, as, as the company grows, you need different capabilities in those seats. So, uh, so it has definitely been a big part of making sure that I move myself a little bit more above. Uh, spend more time with uh, with the external, uh, whether that's uh, media or our big customers. Also internally, just getting around to our country, 17 of them now. Uh, it, it takes a while to just actually stay in touch with the teams. Do you have a physical location in all 17? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. we do. So you gotta we, have a, we have about 22 different offices. Yeah. Okay. Just... just um, how do you organize that every six months? Do you have a coach or do you have your board? Or how do you assess your role as a CEO every six months? Because that sounds like a very disciplined way of looking at it and a very helpful one as well. Yeah, so at least annually, I, uh, I in a disciplined way, ask uh, everyone on my team, what, what, what can I do better? What can I do to be a better leader for this company going forward? I want three things and, uh, and not two. <laughs> um, and then uh, sometimes I take a coach. Uh, I have one coach now that I've been working with for a couple of years uh, and that, that works well. Um, and then I also talk to other CEOs. I do some reading as well. I don't think you can read your way to being a good leader, mm -hmm. but you can definitely get some inspiration. Um, so it's a little bit of a mix. And then I, I sit down around uh, Christmas and around the summer. Okay. I'm going to move into capital. We're not going to spend too much time on this one, but I, I wanted to kind of go into the, again, you've got an impact venture in a way, and you've also got a profitable company. You raised money. Your last round you took sort of smack in the middle or right on the, the end, I'd say smack in the middle of the pandemic. What was it like to raise money for that? And did that have a, do you, is there a different impact Pandemic impact versus now impact, or is it still the same? Uh, so you mean? Do you mean the impact we have as a company? No, I meant in the ra in raising money. Like, uh, ah. it, was it difficult? More difficult then? Is it more difficult now? Yeah. Do you have a sense based on your spit spot in the market? What you're what you're pitching? 
So, so d- during the pandemic, Too Good To Go was hit really hard because all of our stores were hit yeah. hard. Uh, so when, when the stores shut down, we lost 60% of our revenue over 10 days. And, uh, and, and we had to raise money quite quickly. This was not something we had planned, like I guess most others. Um, but we managed to raise the money within eight or 10 days. Uh, so it was an internal round, uh, obviously, uh, with that timeline, but, but it was really just, and, and that's mainly the advantage, I think, of, of having good investors is, you know, we get everyone on a call and you talk through, this is the situation. Here's our forecast, how we think things are going to develop. Back then there was a lot of uncertainty, of course, but you know, here's how we think it's going to play out. And then everyone was like, yeah, this is a time to just be shoulder by shoulder. And, and we had the money a, a good week later. When you say raised quickly, that's quick. I, I didn't take eight, eight to 10 days was not what I thought they, that was going to be eight to 10 days. Yeah, wow. And a lot of money you raised, right? I mean, it's like, was it third, that the 35 million round or something? No, no, that was, uh, that quick round was yeah. only about, uh, seven, eight million euros. Yeah, still, still. Yeah. 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 Maybe can I maybe uh, just digress a bit into uh, into how you manage the crisis because uh, yeah. that decline in revenue, even though I mean, even though you 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 extended your runway with that uh, with that intermediate round, uh, must have still been pretty traumatic for for the company. Um, so because your whole purpose is gone, right? <laughs> your clients are gone. So how how do you manage that, and um, how has that impacted your uh, leadership style. Um, I, I think we learned a lot from that crisis, and and the first one, the first big lesson was really to lead with your values. Mm. Uh, we care is one of our values, so when we went to the investors, it was also with the message that we want to do everything we can to not let anyone go, mm. um, and we need funding to achieve that. And uh, and we also really believed in the company. So we also really believed that in a few months, we will also need these people back. So <laughs> let's let's keep them on to begin with. Yeah, and your investors um, were sympathetic to that. They didn't say, no, okay, this is a time to trim trim down um, the company, you know, basically. Which was use, the trend. Use the opportunity to, yeah, to reduce headcount. And they didn't. No, 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 no we, not at that point in time, no, because... I mean, we we were very bullish about what we're doing. Uh, I think you know, climate will continue to be an issue and and a huge concern. And we have a real solution here. So, so everyone really believe in the concept and the business. So it was more about how can we win time and what can we have all these people do in a meaningful way. And here we actually launched um, something we called the We Care, uh, where we allowed our partners to sell food at regular price on the app. You know, okay. normally it's a discount surplus food, but because a lot of them didn't have any partners on the digital side and they didn't have any sales channel, we went out and said, actually, you can just put it on our platform so, and and we'll help you generate some cash flow, hopefully. So in a way, that's like a half pivot, not really a pivot, but it's like you didn't pivot the whole business. You just said, look, these are special times. Yeah. So we're going to create yeah. special setups, which we may or may not retain going forward. Was there anything yeah, else in the pivot section where you had to change something dramatically or just this? Uh, I mean, we did also work with some supermarkets on uh, creating uh, this concept around essential bags. You know, a lot of people were concerned about going to the supermarket and by having wow. these bags, you could just go mm. to the delivery at the front or something, get your bag and, and leave again. Did so, that stay? Uh, so there were a couple of yeah. things we tried. But did that stay um, afterwards? No. no. Okay. No. 
No, no. And we were clear with the partners from the start that, you know, this is what this will be an interim thing. Yeah. And, okay. uh, and then we shut it down as things open and, and they found other tools that were more equipped for that. But just so we don't miss the lesson uh, for the people who are listening, you know, in a time of crisis, this company and Meta and the team, they innovated in, if I can say it this way, in the bag. You innovated in like what was available on the platform and what. So they didn't just say, oh, okay, it's difficult, we'll slow it down. They said, oh, we got to look inside of what we have control over and do something in there to sort of keep it moving. So it sounds like you guys got hyper creative in the yeah, how do we use yeah. this and supporting um, your loyal customers as well yeah, yeah and, and that was actually really appreciated by a lot of our partners i mean this was a tough time and honestly having salespeople call out to a crying baker it did it didn't make any sense it wasn't the right thing to do but calling out and saying hey you know, here's what we can do to help. You know, you take it or you don't take it. By the way, it was a, you know, we didn't make any money on that. We waived the fee on that. But um, it, it was also a way to just keep the interaction and we could contribute a little bit. We, we touched on capital. I think the only other question I had, or you had a question, especially like raising for impact versus raising for a profit. Yeah, yeah. Because um, well, we, we touched on that a bit before. Um, but, and also, you know, how do you, your... Uh, investors look at you. I mean, look, do they look at you as an in, as an impact investment, or do they just look at you as a plain hard nosed you know investment with with good return because your company is doing really well? Yeah, so so they definitely look at, at us as a real investment. I mean, they they expect uh, that money back <laughs> with a certain <laughs> return. Uh, but I think what the impact means for them is first that they respect that we we are mission driven and that we can do both but i i also sense that uh, with a lot of them that it is kind of a little bit of their favorite investment because it it's the one where they really feel like they also contribute uh, to doing something good but in but your investors are regular investors or they do they do they um present themselves as impact investors yeah that's that's a mix hmm. uh, that's a mix yeah. We in the beginning we mostly took in uh, private investors and business angels, um, which which for me was uh, a very conscious choice, but also a way to make sure that I I knew them better and I understood better where their heart was and and you know that they were really excited about the mission. And then later on we took on uh, we took in the VCs. So one of our VCs is uh, French uh, Bliss, which is a B Corp certified uh, impact fund. Yeah. yeah. So if you're giving advice to other entrepreneurs that are running an impact venture, would you say follow the same path? Is the right way to go or just go take whatever you can get or what? <laughs> I, I think if, if I were to do it all again, I think I would again start with the private investors um, and then take on uh, the impact VCs later on. So one of the themes across our conversation with you so far has been mission alignment, which means you're you're looking for the investor, you're looking for the employee, you look like this mission alignment theme in, in your space seems to be a, the highest priority, really. Yes, and but it has to be, right? Because if the investors are not aligned, then uh, I can't meet uh, my employees uh, and, and be tr truthful to them. So it needs to stack up. Well, and um, I'd like to move to another topic, which is uh, very close yeah. to my heart, is because we're you we're both kind of 
living in small countries, small markets. So internationalization is a big thing. And and often we are on, on this podcast, we've been talking about rapid scaling. And uh, there's always the question, you know, when, when do you go abroad? Uh, some say you have to start from the outset, you know, you go international. Others say, no, first get your product really, really well designed and, and make sure you've got product market fit. And uh, and others say even later, you know, first capture the market and then, and then go abroad. So uh, you seem to have done you know, gone out fast, uh, but then uh, retracted again and uh, reoriented your internationalization strategy, and then uh, and then moved forward. Uh, can you take us a bit through through that process? Yeah, and and I think I, I think overall the answer to that probably depends on what kind of business it is. But for a marketplace like ours, it makes a ton of sense to start out in one country and really figure out what is the playbook. How do we launch this? How do we operate it and optimize? Um, that was not the approach we took. Um, so when when I joined uh, as an investor about nine months after the app launched, uh, we were already in uh, eight or ten countries, um, which is uh, very very fast for <laughs> for any marketplace. Ambitious. But yeah. but <laughs> and the only way that was possible, I think, was because people had kind of raised their hand in different countries and said, "Why don't I run with this in mm. France or in UK or in Norway and so on." Um, so most of the countries were operated by local entrepreneurs. It's like a Tupperware, and, uh, Tupperware model. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and definitely it, it had its charm, but the problem was because we didn't have a playbook and we didn't know exactly what to do, we were making the same mistakes in 10 countries. Um, mm-hmm. So so when I joined, it was a little bit like we got to slow down to speed up later. Um, so we shut down four of those countries. And uh, and then when, with six left, we had to say that there are only three of these we can afford investing in. The other three, we just kind of we we made the bet that they would just uh, they would just kind of stay where they were ish uh, mm-hmm. until we had the money <laughs> to to come in and give them some love. What's yeah. the what's the I mean if I look at the the profile of getting into a new country, you have the customer side, customer acquisition side and you have the supply side. So is the cost for you to launch into a country like a, a strong consumer promotion or is it is that the cost, the majority of the cost is the customer acquisition? Uh, the, the majority of the cost, I would say, is probably the people and then okay. the marketing on the demand side. Yeah. The demand side more than the supply, okay. But, yeah, but but on the people side, the majority of the cost is on supply. So yeah. it's salespeople, like, literally, that are in the roads. Yeah. And you, because um, I understand that you kind of A-B tested um, your playbook, right? So you, yeah. you, you went with two different strategies to the Netherlands and Belgium. Can you maybe just uh, explain the, the difference between two strategies and, and how that merged into one strategy? Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so the story was that after we went to six countries i i said now we do a full year without any new country launches this Mm. is crazy we need to build foundation so we need the people the processes the tools and then we can launch again when we were ready to launch countries again we launched netherlands and belgium almost simultaneously Mm. but in two different ways and um and and in one country we really we went in hard on sales because you know at the end of the day this all starts with the supply side and then in Netherlands, we, we took uh, a more a different approach where it was more, we want to build the right organization from the beginning. So we want to have both sales and marketing and uh, customer service and everything kind of there from the start. And then we can build more slowly on top. 
Um, so those were the two approaches we took. Um, it was interesting to see how uh, Belgium as the sales country just skyrocketed and Netherlands was super slow. Uh, but but then when you gave it a bit more time, the the sales we then had in Netherlands or in Belgium was not as um, as sustainable because we didn't have success to take care of the partners. We didn't have marketing to make sure that people actually came to pick up all these meals uh, that the stores had prepared. So we started having churn on the supply side, and it just you know it just didn't work. It didn't really stick. Whereas that that flywheel worked a lot better for Netherlands, and it was slower. But once we got something in, it was steady and just moving forward. So in the end, we decided to create a playbook where we took the best of both worlds. So we have the full team in place now when we go in, or all the functions, uh, but we really double down on uh, on sales. So from a CEO perspective, you're saying, look, the ultimate answer was it's okay to sell ahead of your of your support capability as long as it's not that far away. Like take some chances yes. up there, get out yeah. ahead of it, have yeah. some of the growth pains problems, but like don't go so far ahead that you just can't fix it. I think that's what I heard. Yeah, and then we needed more salespeople than we initially thought we would want to have. Yeah. Uh, so So that then brings have. me to measuring growth. Like I could imagine a number of different dimensions in which you might measure your growth and your scale. You could look at the impact side, I think. You guys measure like how many meals are, are not gone to waste and things like that. But you also look at the kind of, I guess, the hardcore business metrics of like revenue and growth and profit and all that. When you communicate to the company or you communicate to the world, what do you communicate as success? We we always communicate meals saved. That That is our core metric. Um, and that's how that's how we can see our impact but it also happens to be directly proportional of course to our uh, top line revenue um we are increasingly now starting to also talk about revenue in the company uh, and and that's as part of this journey towards uh, becoming uh, a more long-term sustainable company financially uh, as we embarked on that journey last year and um and uh, and really you know, invited the team in to be to be part of this journey towards what we call independence, uh, which is basically being profitable and not dependent on uh, on raising additional funding. Do you then? Is there a translation path you have to go through with the organization that internally that says, "Hey, look, understand that revenue equals impact." I I, I wonder if you have to. I know I've I've had to address that a couple times in companies, but I'm yeah, curious if yeah, you have to yeah. take that on. Uh, yeah, we yeah we do spend some time on on how you know how the financials work. Um, I think what what maybe also is a little special here is that in addition to all the impact we have on our marketplace, we we also do a lot of other things on top that come with zero revenue, but that are really having an impact. So, for example, um, date labeling is a thing where confusion around use by versus best before oh, is yeah. driving ten percent of food waste in Europe. We, we took on to see if we could help solve that. So we've created this coalition with Unilever, Nestled, and on Carlsberg, some of the world's biggest food producers, and have them change the labeling on their actual products. Uh, so we've done this coalition in 13 countries now. And, uh, and, and it's had, you know, fairly significant impact when we, when we survey users on, on how they understand these things. And and that that's outside of the whole business model. That's a but stroke for of genius. Hmm? That's a stroke of genius. Yeah, no, actually, I, I had this conversation in my house with my wife. 
because she has a <laughs> she has a, 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 a OCD worry about spoiled milk. I'm telling you, this is a, and oh, and all she I, wants I, is an eat by date. She doesn't want to. <laughs> this thing you're yeah. dealing with is so important. Yeah, there's actually actually when it was in CES, there was a company, a Dutch company, they they basically looked inside the uh, an avocado or strawberries, and they could define, you know, this this fruit still has six or ten days um, um, shelf life, yeah. and uh, and that meant that you know, there's a whole different logistics uh, path that you can take. You know, you can actually you know ship it to the to the east of the U.S. or you have to you have to juice it uh, within you know two days time, <laughs> and which which completely changed the the economics of the of the fruit just by knowing how long the the actual uh, shelf life date was. But taking on the problem yeah. at the manufacturer level, like yeah. what a amazing stroke of genius you guys have. Is it self-serving or is it just you said, oh, we just have to do something about this? No, I, I, I think we, we it just pissed us off, right? Because <laughs> when, you, when, you're, when you're into food waste and this is just dumb yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, and I don't think anyone mean evil because, I mean, it's in everyone's interest to know these things and not waste the food. So, uh, so now it's like best before means often good after. It means you use your senses, you look at it, you smell it, you taste it, and you make a decision. And if it's milk, for example, worst case, you have a bad experience, but you won't get sick. Yeah. There's Wait, no health risk. Best before yeah. means often good after. Yeah. I, this, and you get a cat, <laughs> just feed it to the cat. If the cat doesn't take it, it's probably not good. <laughs> that's your, that's your <laughs> litmus <laughs> test. Oh, yeah. oh man. Look, uh, Good stuff. So, in in the in the course of of, of growth and and the things that you measure, is it? Do you have like celebration moments for like certain bars that you cross? Like, oh, this hundreds of thousands or millions of people have been fed or food saved. Do you have these kind of moments for your company? Yeah. Yes, we we do have these moments. I think a lot of people in the company would probably argue we have too many now. Yeah. Uh, so we, we're trying to reduce it a little bit. But um, but we celebrate all our milestones. So, for example, every month we have a town hall where everyone dials in. We'll celebrate every country that's hit another million meals saved in total. Um, we have, uh, I think today actually might be the day we saved 300,000 meals from going to the bin in one day for the first time. Wow. Uh, so that's something I hope we can celebrate uh, on one day. Um, we have a big target right now ahead of us, which is that we want to have saved 1 billion meals uh, by the end of 25, uh, which, which means if you do the math, which is tough to do yeah. <laughs> in your head right now, but it, we need to speed up a bit. Um, but but I think we're we excited about the targets because, the, you know, as these targets grow, it also means our impact is growing. Well, and yeah. if, you are, if you're keen about impact, you also have to be keen on scale. Um, this, this is kind of... This is the genius. Uh, I'm sorry if you don't mind me complimenting you, but this is the genius in how you guys have chosen what you measure. In a sense, and this is, I'm repeating it for the people listening, you're measuring and you're celebrating an activity on your platform that directly correlates to your business model. So uh, to spin that the other way, you're celebrating an improvement of your revenue and, and growth that directly correlates to your impact in the world. And there's so many of these, I think, impact ventures that are trying to impact something, but their revenue measurement doesn't have a, a straight line correlation. But you, you do. And so every time this happens, you can connect the dots quite easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just multiply with the average fee. Yeah. But what's, what's, yeah. your, what's the perspective on your, on the company? Um, is it, is it, I mean, most companies have a view of kind of how they want to exit or they want to IPO or something. But if your view is, you know, we want to, uh, 
we want to remove food waste, food waste from the world, uh, that might that might impact the way you you know yeah. the, the path of the company you choose. How yeah, it 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 does. Uh, I think what also impacts is that, and I, I don't even think it's because I already exited a company once with some success, but it it's not what drives me. I mean, I you know I'm I'm not here just waiting for the day where someone comes in with a big check. It, that's not the end goal for me. So I I really don't like the whole exit phrase. I I hate it no. actually because it, no. I think if if you want to build something and and I I think most entrepreneurs do they really want to build something. They don't just want to have the big cash out. Then then that's just an event along the way. And for me, I think of it as a, one day there will probably be a change of ownership. Uh, and 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 that's fair. And some people have been on this journey for seven years and took a lot of risk. So one day there will be this change of ownership. And I'm I'm very conscious that we need to find a setup where the mission is preserved in the long term. Uh, so so I'm thinking about what are the kind of owners who would take on a long term view and who would actually see this as uh, an end destination where you don't necessarily have to flip it again in three or five years. Um, so that's what I'm thinking about when I'm not deep dive into the countries anymore. It's like the Patagonias of the world and how they look forward in that space. Um, so maybe flipping to non big business questions, maybe questions for you, just real quick, fast answer. If you could go back in time, you know, this is the classic and, and you could talk to that young person sitting behind the table, uh, by your, your boyfriend's car and you'd say, Hey, look, <laughs> you don't know this, but, uh, here's some lessons you might want in the future. What would you, what would you tell yourself? Uh, I think trust your own judgment, uh, build a fantastic team and then manage your energy. Make sure you can actually be in this for the long run and you don't run out of energy. Okay. And if you were going to like start knowing what you know now, let's say you're going to start a new business. What what space would you get into? Um, I'm not going to start a new business. I, I'm not <laughs> sure I have. I don't think I have more in me than this. But um, I, fashion, I think. Yeah. It's uh, it's insane how much waste uh, there is in fashion. It's insane how we consume new clothes just because there's this, you know, social agreement that it's nice to have new clothes all the time. I mean, really, the clothes was initially to keep us warm. Uh, I I think uh, the whole that whole sector is completely broken. So is the food sector, but but this one is for bad reasons. I think. So this kind of taps on your question of activist versus entrepreneur. Yeah, but I mean, we had we on, we were on the program. We had Thomas Plantinga, you know, of uh, of Vinted, and uh, we have another company, Otrium, who does, you know, and and I think this is a bit like with food. There is a yeah. the, the 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 waste of textile, and is just amazing. And also the 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 how polluting it is. So this is really a sector where it it does trigger a lot of activism, activist yeah. entrepreneurship, but actually very good businesses as well because it's such a big business. Yeah, there's we, we're yeah. running into people yeah. who I think in a way don't really give a shit what you call them activist or entrepreneur it, it, it yeah. ne both need to be yeah, together need, for the change yeah. to be had this right? needs to happen yeah, yeah. yeah. yes well but good so wrapping up um i think we always ask our guests at the end like you know we've got a lot of entrepreneurs listening so if you have any words of advice and you just gave yourself some advice but perhaps you can give words of advice you know the the audience is yours uh what what, what would you like them to know I, I think everyone who has an entrepreneur inside and have the skills and that grip should really think about how can we build better companies. 
how can we really optimize for what the world needs more of and, and just leave a better place behind? And maybe one difference between the activist and the entrepreneur is that the entrepreneur can actually get a different scale behind it, but you need to work with the business and the, the economics of it and actually use that as to your advantage. And then you can get to scale in a very different way if you, than if you run an NGO. Okay. So on that, we'll just say thank you. Uh, for your time and your energy and obviously for the difference that you're making in the world. Yeah, I mean, I could keep on talking for <laughs> hours. I mean, you, you you bring up so many interesting perspectives and uh, but most of all, you're just a, a very, very, very inspiring entrepreneur and uh, doing, doing a lot of good in the world. So uh, if you ever consider, I mean, you still have so much time ahead of you. Uh, so to disrupt the uh, the textile industry, we'd love to Let have you know. back. Uh, yeah, we won't be Let there. <laughs> we won't be there. Probably, we, we know but, people. But we will. We will uh, kind of reinstall ScaleLab. You know, just for, for that. The, yeah, just for that. <laughs> so uh, thanks a lot thanks, for uh, for your time. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening to the ScaleLab, a podcast brought to you by TechLeap. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please share it on your network via social media and give us your feedback. See you on the next episode.